Hello, welcome back to the Book of Medora. It's me, Crystal, and with me, as always, is Monica. Hello. And Cameron. Hi. We're going to do a mailbag. we got lots of emails to answer. We, we have an absolute ton of emails, it turns out. Uh, when we start recording, people start sending them in. Who could have figured? Thank you for sending us emails. Our earliest email comes in from Lambda, a.k.a. Curly Brace. Hello, Cam, Crystal, and Monica. During your exploration of the Metroid games in a possible series timeline, you expressed bafflement and frustration with Super Metroid. I write to you in order to offer a possible explanation for how Super Metroid can simultaneously be canonical and also a remake of the original Metroid. Spoilers for Metal Gear Solid 2. Jesus. This is off to a great start. The S3 plan run by the Patriots is initially described as an effort to recreate the circumstances of the Shadow Moses incident, i.e. MGS1. S3 stands for Solid Snake Simulation, and Raiden is being subjected to this intense training program, the Big Shell Incident. The Patriots are supposedly doing this in order to craft Raiden into a soldier like Solid Snake. While this explanation of the S3 plan ultimately turns out to be misinformation, I feel like it might be a parallel to what happens in Super Metroid. Allow me to explain. Raven Beak is kind of like the Patriots, controlling things in the shadows. He uses the space pirates as his pawns, just like the Patriots use various characters in the Metal Gear Solid franchise. The events of the first Metroid game may or may not have been the result of Raven Beak's plans. It doesn't really matter either way. However, the events of Metroid 2 were probably not part of his plan. Destroying the Metroid species seems counterproductive to his goals. Faced with the Samus Aran outside of his control, and the near extinction of the Metroid species, Raven Beak implements his own S3 plan. Samus Sidekick Simulation. He instructs the Space Pirates to capture and clone the baby Metroid. The Space Pirates reconstruct Mother Brain with the help of Chozo Tech. Raven Beak lays out all of the obstacles on Zebus to challenge Samus. He intentionally recreates the first mission on Zebus, but obviously with a greater difficulty. He wants to awaken her Metroid control genes, hence the reappearance of the baby Metroid. Raven Beak had the space pirates grow it in size so it would be a formidable sidekick for Samus, yet he made sure the baby Metroid didn't evolve because then it might be more difficult for Samus to control. Raven Beak's plan ultimately fails and Samus does not yet awaken her ability to control Metroids. But at least Samus has a better understanding of the Metroids, and perhaps an appreciation for them as well. Ravenbeak is not too upset though, because he made sure the Galactic Federation got their hands on Metroid DNA. I hope y'all enjoy my reframing of Super Metroid. I love the podcast, keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Lambda. This is very interesting. And intricate. <laughs> and intricate, and was sent to us September of last year, which was before our... Other M watch through. Yes. And yet there are interesting connections we can make together. What? What? What do you mean? Crystal, I think you brought in MGS2 with, with Other M, right? That's true. I proposed that it was some kind of a simulation for a clone Samus. Yeah. It, it makes, I think, uh, Lambda's idea really interestingly, without getting into Other M, uh, talks about some of that training program stuff. One thing I would say uh, is a slight oddity is that it relies on the same Samus going through the same planet, but harder. But if you interpose other M and you say there is a different, 
there's a clone, then it, it makes more sense? Question mark? Cameron? Not not Super Metroid, but just other M in general. Cameron, what do you think? My brain is burned out by trying to process. Like, I was already put on the back step by Lambda's thing because I'm thinking, like, does that fit in with how we were talking about how does Ravenbeak being trapped and then with the ex-parasites and then also Super Metroid's happening, but he got just left. And then, and then Monica comes in bringing up this Other M thing that we had going on where it's like, oh, Other M's actually formed, got a clone. It's like, maybe the clone did experience Super Metroid. Maybe she's the, oh my God, Ravenbeak did talk about wanting to clone Samus. She wasn't cloned by the Federation. She was cloned by Ravenbeak and supplied with Chozo tech and Chozo power armor. Maybe. <laughs> to what end? To attempt to create the Metroid. Yes. I'd like to posit everybody wants to clone a Metroid. Samus is Metroid, the ultimate warrior. Everybody wants to clone Samus. I, I don't know. I'm feeling overstimulated by all this new potential information you already I, thought that Ravenbeak did super metroid i mean i did kind of already think that Ravenbeak did super metroid that is what i thought it's not adding that many layers of complexity on top of it now that you put it that way and really the the, the thrust of this theory is that the baby metroid was supposed to be samus's little buddy that survived right which in fact we do see with samus returns so did Mother Brain act outside of its purview in killing the baby Metroid? I guess it must have. It was an emergency. Was it? She was getting killed. She was getting Metroided. Not very well programmed if the whole point of it is to be killed. Well, she didn't realize the larger objective for Ravenbeak. Right, that's what I'm saying. That, that is very Metal Gear because they didn't plan for the hero to show up and make things go wrong. Or did they? No. Wait. Wait, in Metal of Gear. They must have planned. In Metal Gear, I guess they did or didn't. I've kind of lost track of the plot of Metal Gear. Are we training Samus or are we training the baby Metroid? <laughs> I think we're training Samus to bond with the baby Metroid so that she'll be cool with Ravenbeak's plan. How would bonding with the baby Metroid make her cool with Ravenbeak's plan? Um because then she wouldn't want to destroy all the Metroids. You know what? It's not It's not fair for me to throw that question at you because we're attributing um, this reasoning to Ravenbeak and his reasoning doesn't have to make sense to us. That's right. He is a bird brain. He is, he is a birdman. <laughs> it's true. He wants to instill feelings of motherhood onto Samus. The oh, baby's already bonded to Samus. What? I'm coming back around to him being behind the Samus clone for Metroid Other M. Exactly. In conjunction, <laughs> in conjunction with the Federation? Um, no, it's just Samus. The Federation has no idea what's going on with her either. Oh, what? Adam would be very weirded out by meeting her. No, I don't know. I don't fucking know. Ravenbeak didn't do other rim. Or did he? What, what do you, no. <laughs> what do you make of it, Crystal? What do I make of this? What do I make of this? I think it's plausible. <laughs> plausible is a very good word for it. I mean, he, he wants someone to make Metroids, and he can't do it, so he schemes behind the scenes to get the space pirates to do it. That makes sense. That does make sense. Can we split off Samus Returns and Return of Samus? Yeah, we, I think we've already done that. We've already done that. And then say that it goes to separate instances of Super Metroid. Yeah, I think we've already done that, too. Okay. Like, there's, Oh, good. And then one is the clone version. There's like five different versions of Super Metroid. Okay. 
And then and then one of them was experienced by a clone who they tried to awaken. <laughs> okay. I I forgot how complicated our Metroid timeline was. Not intellectually, <laughs> but like on the visceral experiential level. Distressingly. Yeah, spiritually complicated. All of the Super Metroids involve fighting with Ridley, so it's still a bit perplexing the other M stuff with the clone. Well, maybe I guess it's the like clone- the clone has brain memories of fighting Ridley, but the clone does not have muscle memories of fighting Ridley. Yeah, so that's yeah, it why hasn't- she freaks out. It hasn't been written into her nervous system. Okay, but so yeah. none of the clones were actually involved with Super Metroid, just with other M. Yes, they they had these memories implanted in them. However, that I would not work with the clone scenario here. They're still just training actual Samus. Y- yes. Okay. Because the Galactic Federation and Ravenbeak are separate, even though Ravenbeak tries to use the Federation. I feel like it's such a tangled web we've woven out of a series that is nominally as plot thin as the Metroid games. Well, when you try to uh, continually remake the games as new games, this is what happened. True. Let's do the next email. Okay. Who should read it, Crystal? Cameron reads it. Okay. This comes in from No Signed Name. Hi. Long time listener. First time postman running across field to catch you. I have a question. How badly is the timeline affected if you put the speedrunning routes for the games in? As an avid Zelda speedrunner, I'm curious how the timeline would be affected by the broken games. A good example is in Ocarina of Time. You defeat Ganon as Child Link, thus never creating the adult timeline. In Wind Waker Any% Link would never find out Tetra is Zelda. Would he still travel with her after the game? Or in Breath of the Wild, if Link defeats Ganon on pure impulse and never gets his memories, do they come back later? Though after hitting himself with bombs for 30 minutes or so, I think he'd have bigger problems. Look forward to hearing your ideas. I was so excited for this email. Oh. On the Blessed Timeline, this could be called Shards of the Demon War. Oh, God in heaven. <laughs> yeah, that that would be Luke's explanation, yes, but that's because Luke likes to put anything that's difficult to fit as Shards of the Demon War. Just imagine in the background, every single Zelda speedrun is listed. Mm-hmm. That's that. That's how it works on the Blessed Timeline. Yeah, he's got the the hard to see text that says Ocarina of Time any percent and Ocarina of Time no major glitches. <laughs> I was so excited to see this one because I had this really good fanfic idea for Ocarina of Time. Okay, go on. Oh yes, I remember this. I, yes, I, I laid it out to Cameron, but I will lay it out here. I, it has not been written uh, free to anyone who wants to write it. I guess. Which is basically that Ocarina of Time Link, uh, after the regular conclusion of the game, goes, no, I have to do it better. And basically goes back in time and then does it all. Which we kind of see with the ending of Ocarina of Time. But um, learn speedrunning. And it this fic would capture the major progressions uh, story-wise... That happened with uh, speedrunning, which cast my mind back. One of the first ones is simply bypassing the spiritual stones and sort of rolling through the door of time, which doesn't impact anything too much aside from skipping a lot of the child stuff. Um, the second major jump was, what was it? Remind me. I think it was... It was learning how to skip some of the adult temples. Yeah, and effectively... 
you would end up in the final battle or the fleeing from the final battle to Ganon. Well, the first is that it oh, only, no, no. It, it only it, checks if you have the shadow medallion and the spirit medallion. Yeah, no, it, it's it's skipping like all of that with the, the bugs uh-huh. and the, the Deku uh, stick. Right. So it's young Link running around with this, the tower collapse with Zelda. Right. And fighting Ganon. Right. And then the final one is a bypass of the entire game straight to ending in the clouds. Yeah, right to the ending cutscene. So I think it would be most interesting told from Zelda's perspective, in which, firstly, there's a Link that, A, she doesn't meet or doesn't do a lot of the childhood stuff from. And then, secondly, and she vaguely remembers, there is a scenario where uh, kid a kid pops up in the dark future and she flees the castle from him and, uh, with him and uh, fights Ganon. And then a third alternative where it's like suddenly pop, everybody is in the sky for some reason. That would be a good, cool, interesting game. Because by doing this, he bypasses all the conflict that leads up to Ganon's defeat. Everything good now. Yes, everything good now. God. So what? the thing is that even if you do these skips, it does not change any of the dialogue or cutscenes. That's true. So it's really just skipping around in Link's personal timeline. Well, I don't. With Ocarina of Time in particular, where you jump to the ending, specifically after all of the Gandorf is dead and sealed, do the conversations happen? What is conversed? Yeah, if you skip all those meetings and all the tragedies that come between them, there's actually like a lot that you end up saying doesn't happen. Because very little of it is directly referenced in those last few conversations. Yeah, Zelda just says, sorry for taking up your time and sends you back. Yeah, all seven minutes of it. So are, are there like a hundred different adult and child timelines? No. No, this is a collapsing timeline thing. More like Majora's Mask, I would suppose. Okay. The speedrunner timeline. What about a, a Skyward Sword where you are playing a large portion of it in the menu? At, at the title screen. At the title screen. I mean, we've already, like, Skyward Sword is the one game where we can go, like, that's highly a uh, style time fuckery. The rest of it, I'm becoming um, less inclined to attribute certain cosmic actions to Hylia as we go along. But in Skyward Sword, I think it makes perfect sense. In conclusion, I think... These would all make for really great fanfics. Has anyone tried to write the fix of implications with speedruns? If not, somebody should. And if yeah. they have, send in recommendations. Yes. <laughs> Does Link get his memories back if he goes straight to Gan? Oh, get Link, in this case, would have to have memories of every loop that he's made. Again, like Majora's Mask. He knows everything. I think, Crystal, you mean Breath of the Wild, right? Yes. Oh, 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 sorry. I'm sorry. Um, I think he eventually gets them back. He definitely doesn't have them initially up to the ending. And when Zelda says, do you remember me? He's like, yeah. Who knows? <laughs> Felt it was important to get to you really quickly. What do you think, Crystal? No, I think he doesn't get his memories back if he doesn't do the memories. Oh, Ever? really? That's right. That's so he doesn't recognize Zelda. So you would say that Tears of the Kingdom is only canon to a version of breath of the wild where link gets all of his memories back no it could be a sequel to the version where he doesn't get his memories back 
But if he doesn't get his memories back, why is he pressed down by the weight of people's expectations again? It's been it's been six years. Hmm. Is there anything which in the game really requires Link to have remembered stuff? The final cutscene. How so? No, the the extra cutscene at the end of Breath of the Wild. No, no, I mean in Tears of the Kingdom. Is there any point where someone goes, Oh yeah, Link, remember <laughs> I doubt it. Well, there is the statue of him riding Sidon, so we know oh, that part God. of the game happened. Oh, right. That is canonical. Yeah. So I would uh, say that at least in Tears of the Kingdom, you can only have it be canonical with the version of him that did all four major plots. But that's not the memories. That's not the memories. That's true. It is some of the memories, though. Is it? Yeah, you have memories tied to all of the main plot lines, just oh, not memories about Zelda. Right, just with the, with the champions. champions. Yeah, I got nothing. It's an interesting idea. Monica, I think this next one is yours, uh, merging timelines. Okay. Dear Book of Medora, I have a theory on how the timelines merged. Great. It hinges on the power of the Master Sword. Going forward in time from the beginning, we have several splits in the timeline. However... When the sword is sent back to Zelda in Tears of the Kingdom, at a time before any splits occurred, it becomes a fixed beacon with the ability to thread the timelines back into one by the time of its return to the far future in Link's day. Kind of like a zipper. The separate timelines merge together at various points, and I postulate that the Oracle games occur at a merging point of two timelines. As someone who has not played through them, though, I ask you for your opinion. Is this possible? And what is the nature of the Triforce when multiple timelines exist? When only two timelines exist, are there only two pieces of the Triforce? Do sacred stones only exist in single timelines? As my closing thought, I include the customary praise for your excellent podcast. You, have the, you all have the most intriguing thoughts on Zelda that I have heard in any of the multitude of podcasts I have listened to. Thank you, Zavrin. Thank you, Zavrin. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Crystal, what do you make of this? The Master Sword is a zipper. I mean, that's kind of how it works in Ocarina of Time, right? Okay, could you, could you explain that a little <laughs> bit to me, to Cameron? Because the, the time travel is done by lifting or putting down the Master Sword. Kind of like pulling up or pulling down the zipper. That is a very similar motion. <laughs> is that Was that all of it? <laughs> And then the child timeline is sort of like if Zelda put a tape over the zipper. So you can't pull <laughs> well, it. It's like a zipper, so you can't pull it. Uh, rather than a zipper, let's imagine it like a needle, because a sword is pointy. Like a okay. needle. Because a sword's fucking pointy. Yeah. And then, the, the like a needle, we're attaching the thread of time. So, like sewing, we have gone from... The, the past, or sorry, the, the, the present, we've anchored our little knot there. We have sent the needle into the past, which is another fabric. And then we've zoomed it back. So we have created a nice little stable time loop. And then you pull it tight. And now all the disparate times are, are woven together. <laughs> Seamed together, rather. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And then we have Sheik who says that the Master Sword is a ship with which you can sail upstream and downstream through Time's River. In the ship analogy, it would be like a net. What? 
the master sword is the ship, and you're you've got a little uh, fishing line or net dragging behind it, and you form a little loop, and then you you bring the net together, and then you've got fish inside. <laughs> that makes I'm sense. Having, to- I'm having so much trouble today, so I'm glad that it's making sense to the two of you. Oh, Cameron's only- getting. What is the nature of the Triforce in multiple timelines? Oh, fuck. We keep, we've avoided talking about this. We have only uh, two ways to look at it, right? It's separate Triforces. Or one Triforce. Or one Triforce. I'm in favor of one Triforce. I am also in favor of one Triforce, and I remember thinking the same thing back in 2001 and 2002. As our technical writers... Um, our listeners have submitted it's a singleton oh christ so there's only one yeah the singleton that concept i understand very good uh-huh i like this uh concept of a a needle or a net behind the ship or a zipper because it embodies how the zelda producers think of the zelda series which is there's a whole lot of mess over here, but don't worry. We're covering it up. We're zipping it up. We're sewing it into the back so you can't see it. That I'll... does mirror how the producers think about it, yeah. <laughs> I that I do like the sewing thing, yeah. I think the Master Sword is a needle sewing together bullshit. It does make a lot of sense. The Master Sword is the primary mover of time rather than the Triforce, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. Okay. And I like yeah. the idea that when it goes all the way back, that's what merges the timeline. Now that assumes that the backstory of Tears of the Kingdom takes place before the entire rest of the series. That does assume that, yes. Which is not a given. It's not a given. We'll have to work that out. But assuming that, it does make a certain kind of horrifying sense. It's especially- like if you if you split your hair into three parts... <laughs> And then you put it into a braid. Mm-hmm. And you can still, you can, if you look closely, you can still see that there's three different parts, but it's also one braid. And it's also from one head of hair. Exactly. <laughs> or going back to the sewing analogy, even though you have brought two pieces of fabric together and seamed them together, you can rick, rip up the stitches. You could pull out little bits from the back if you really desired. Or it could fall loose and, you know, flop open. How do we feel about the Master Sword as a loom? That's a much a more complicated uh, instrument that I don't know as well. Yeah, a loom for weaving a tapestry. I think that's what the Ocarina of Time is. <laughs> oh, now I'm thinking. Okay. Yeah, Zelda operated it in a very fancy manner at the ending of Ocarina of Time. The Ocarina of Time is a pair of fabric scissors. Okay. Do not use them on any other materials ever. Yeah. Don't use the Ocarina of Time to... Okay, th- wh- what the fuck? How, this analogy Some has fallen apart Some people have taken now. fabric stickers. Yes, I know that scissors. they fuck up their fabric scissors by cutting paper <laughs> or whatever, but what does that got to do with the Ocarina of Time? What the fuck? If you try to cut through people instead of time, uh, you fuck it up. Wait, how God do people admit? mess up their fabric scissors? Uh, if you use it... To cut anything else, like a plastic tag or something, you're dulling it really badly. And uh, yeah, it's very upsetting to people who, who work with fabric. You hear jokes sometimes from people whose kids use their fabric scissors to cut things. And it's like, I'm putting this kid up for sale. 
to fund <laughs> buying some more fabric scissors. Why don't they just make the fabric scissors better? I... The thing is that they're made so well and so specifically. Yes. That they are very delicate instruments. When I was okay. very young, I took my mom's fabric scissors and I tried to cut through a pin. I don't know why I was a child. Damn, kid. <laughs> so oh, no. the fabric scissors were very ruined. And there was a, a small, not bump, but indent where the, <laughs> the pin was. And you would just never be able to cut the fabric perfectly. I'm sorry, Mom. <laughs> but you can't resharpen them? It would be like trying to uh, straighten the wheel well on a, a, on a car. Uh, did you ever see that episode of King of the Hill where... Um, have you ever watched King of the Hill? Yes. You know that episode where Hank backs over some spike strips and says, Everybody remain calm. We have just taken severe tire damage. Uh-huh. And then he sa- he's told to drive on, and he says, but if I drive on them while they're deflated, these tires will never sit true again. It, it's the same thing. Or it's like that song, once the paper is crumpled up, it can't be perfect again. Like the Linkin Park song. Like the Linkin Park song. I think that's Forgotten. I can't remember. That's right. Forgotten by Linkin Park. <laughs> I don't know it. Was it used in any AMVs? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Then I probably heard it, but did not piece out the lyrics. Yeah, it's forgotten. Okay, I was just double checking. But yeah, you can't fix things like that sometimes. It's just, uh, it's effectively impossible to make them perfect again. But you can fix a cast iron pan. Yes. Yes. Even though people love to freak out about them. Well, you can fix the cast iron pan because the effective part of a cast iron pan can be remade. You can't fix seasoning. You have to strip it off entirely and then reapply it. Let me ask you something. Okay. Is like one month worth of seasoning that different from 10 years worth of seasoning? (laughs) Is Um, there a meaningful difference? (laughs) In terms of how easy it is to destroy, not really. If somebody uses your cast iron pan to cook over blistering hot heat, it's still going to end up killing the seasoning once it hits like 800 fucking degrees on it, mother. I think what we learned about (laughs) this is uh, cast iron pans, I would say no, Crystal, because what people think of as seasoning of cast irons, you know, that are decade old or decades old are actually a different way of manufacturing the cast iron pan itself. They used to be smoother. Oh. That's true. Present day ones are manufactured differently, and the surface is slightly bumpier. Yeah, it takes dozens upon dozens of layers of um, seasoning in order to get the same kind of finish that cast irons used to have. Can it have the same finish? Maybe not. Even then, it may not be possible. That's why... um, old cast iron pans are still so valued because they are able to be used for nonstick purposes a lot more liberally. That makes a lot of sense to me. Okay. Yeah, the manufacturing process just changed because making them this way is so much more economical. Krista, I'd like to point you, and Cameron, if you haven't seen it, Cameron, to some person on Reddit. Reddit did it a hundred times. I think it was more like a, yeah, maybe a hundred or maybe higher. They seasoned it. There is a marked difference. Crystal, this I'm is one where it's as smooth as marble. No, I'm linking it in the line now. Okay. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen this one. <laughs> Shiny as a mirror. Yeah, you you could definitely do your makeup in this thing. But is this a, an antique cast iron or is it a newer one? I I don't know. Okay. Where were we? <laughs> I think we finished this email. I think we finished this email. Okay. Thank you again, Zava. I believe that our next one is a theory about the geoglyphs. Hey there, Madorans. It's Jason again. There's been some debate on the podcast about how the geoglyphs formed, and I think I have a fairly sound theory. Definitely poke holes if you see them, though. Zelda, after getting sent to the past, has one goal. Help Link kill Ganondorf. When she eventually draconifies, her tears are spread across the land with this concept in mind. Help her Link kill that Ganondorf. They lie dormant on the surface until the activation conditions are met. Link and Ganondorf must be in conflict for them to activate. Once that conflict starts, aka when Ganondorf is freed and Link is actively opposing him, they activate, putting up beacons in the form of geoglyphs, formed out of the imprint of the tears themselves upon the land. Love, love listening to the podcast. Cheers, Jason. Thanks, Jason. Thanks. Crystal, how do you feel about this one? Yeah, this is how I assumed it worked. Uh, yeah, I think this definitely explains why the puddle wasn't in Breath of the Wild. Hey, can, can I would just like to say, I talk past it a lot in the episodes themselves. Like, ah, don't worry about it. It's just the upheaval. I think that the geoglyphs are the biggest, like, plot hole in Tears of the Kingdom. Maybe not in terms of how egregious it is, but just in terms of how visible it is. Is it a plot hole? Where were these fucking things before? They, the they weren't visible. In the grass? <laughs> how could they be in the grass? Crystal, this was the best argument for why this must be an altered timeline. Because this shit didn't make any sense. The now, I'm, look, I'm, I'm looking at the map here. Uh-huh. The only geoglyph that is near Nekluda Valley <laughs> is the, the one that looks like, uh, like a fish or a salamander or something. Yeah. It's right where the path to Gerudo Desert would be in Ocarina of Time. Oh, so the Maldugo one. Yes. So it, it so perhaps in the Ganon versus Link conflicts of Ocarina of Time, it that one did show up in Gerudo Desert, and Ganondorf knew he had a special purpose. You've combined this theory with the geography timeline. That's right. <laughs> this is when else has Ganondorf showed up? Four Swords Adventures, right? Uh, there's, oh, yeah, there's one right outside the, um, the big plateau in Hyrule Ridge. Although that one might have been underwater still at that point. <laughs> this is truly dark work you are doing. Uh, Twilight Princess, well, there's no explanation for that. Well, I mean, we don't know that the hero's shade is actually a link. We assume it is, and it seems obvious that he's meant to be, but we don't know that. But in... Jason's email, they're saying that... That particular Link and that particular Ganondorf. Yeah. Yeah, so all the other Links and Ganons don't don't matter. They don't activate it. That could also work. I was thinking... The biggest issue to me is Breath of the Wild. Uh, but, you know, Jason is saying if, it, you know, Ganon wasn't an act... Well, I mean, I guess it's a different Ganon. Calamity Ganon different it's, Yeah, from, it's a different Ganon. Yeah, so it didn't show. But for me, the thought came up, what if... So Zelda bursts out as a dragon. The tears hit the ground. There's some sort of magical quality in the tear. Or maybe not magic. Science really is just... Oh my god. 
<laughs> Magic is science when it's not understood. So the chemical from the tear hits the ground and uh, suffuses it all over. Maybe people make shapes on it later or not, but the important thing is the ground is permeated with it. And then it's like um, fluorescence under a black light. <laughs> There's They put out a big black light and they all showed up. That's the, all I got. The black light being the gloom from the upheaval. Sure. Oh my god. Okay. I was thinking of something that I was going to say. It's gone now. <laughs> it's left my head. Um. Oh, yes. My one thing about this theory is that the place where you discover the map of the geoglyphs that was made in the Zonai style behind the Forgotten Temple heavily implies that the geoglyphs were known at some point in Hyrulean history. Oh, yes. And Impa suggests the same thing. In fact, Impa says that the ancients built the geoglyphs around the memories. Yes. So they faded at some point and then came back. The gloom must have activated them. (laughs) Or, no, wait, wait, wait. Zelda, as the dragon, was flying very high up initially. Oh, it's Zelda's proximity that makes them appear. Yes, Zelda's proximity, because that's triggered at the start of the game. Zelda is the black light. That makes sense. I feel like it's something that if I try to poke holes in it, I'll be here all day. So yeah, I'll I'll go with that for, yeah, okay. (laughs) Yeah, Zelda. Yay. Okay, okay. Well, thank you for sending us down this this particular line of reasoning, Jason. It has helped us shore up some genuine problems with the chronology of Tears of the Kingdom. How do the puddles fill with water? Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. They're filled with tears. Okay. <laughs> the tears okay. came back. Zelda cried. That was the chemical, I guess. The ke- the chemical. Whose turn is it? It's mine. Correction plus question. Oh, God, I love a correction. Okay, hit me. Hello. First of all, in the Triforce of the Gods 2 episode, the question was posed as to whether Herodotus was Athenian. I wanted it to be noted that he was from Halicarnassus in modern-day Turkey. Although I will admit his histories, more like travel guides with local stories he found interesting, they're kind of fun to read, honestly, aren't the best at acknowledging women. Well, thank you for that particular correction. That's important. That's actual people. Yes, this is people that we're talking about. Secondly, the question. In the Zelda Unrivaled bonus episodes, it's noted that Zelda disguising herself as Sheik was pretty racist. I was wondering if you thought it was as racist when she did it in Ocarina of Time, and if not, why not? Thank you for making this podcast. It's very fun. It might be quite a while before I catch up, unfortunately, but I am enjoying the ride. Artemis, Keon, Sally, Rowan, Noir, Rose, Alexandra, Elise, Maeve, Harrow, Hark, Lillian, Valentine, Eve, Ash, Cowan. All right. Thank you, Artemis. So I guess the difference between Sheik in Hyrule Warriors and Sheik in Ocarina of Time is that in Ocarina of Time, Zelda was raised by Impa and inducted into the ways of Ika. And in yes. Hyrule Warriors, she just kind of does it by herself. She sure does do it. And, and Impa herself. has no idea about it. I think we talked about this a little bit in the episode. Whereas in Ocarina of Time, it's like, why does she call herself Sheik? Maybe that was just a common name for Sheikah boys or Impa's really bad at giving names. In Zelda Unrivaled, why does she call herself Sheik? Because she's Sheik the Sheikah. You know, I, I replayed Ocarina of Time recently. And it's sort of funny how... Smash Brothers Melee changed what everyone thinks Sheik looks like. How so? In Ocarina, 
Sheik isn't wearing a mask. It's just a high scarf past which you can see their mouth. That's true. And in Melee... Melee, uh, Sheik is wearing a mask, just like in later games. And this wasn't the redesign where it's Twilight Princess. This was... They tried to be a faithful adaptation I don't know how faithful they were trying to be. But well, I was, mean, but they were definitely referencing... Uh, they were, was ref- referencing, they were referencing Ocarina of Time, but yeah. maybe going more for the feel that... Uh, well, that's one thing that Sakurai did a lot in Melee, was change characters' appearances to be more in line with what he thought the impression that a character was supposed to give would be. Like, his version of Bowser... Uh, he tried to make Bowser look much more threatening than Bowser looked at the time because he thought that modern Bowser was too goofy and cartoony. And that's also where Giga Bowser ended up coming from. Is he the only guy who thinks of Bowser that way? No. Absolutely not. <laughs> Bowser is not a scary man. He's goofy. He is goofy. He is goofy. He wants to be giant, rough, and tough, but that just kind of makes him, like, kind of adorable. Yeah, absolutely. Bowser can fulfill many roles as the story demands of him. He's a much more flexible villain than Ganon is in that way. He can be the guy who's going to destroy the universe, but he can also just be a comedic foil. Big and I think turtle. That big turtle. Breathe fire. Good dad? Generally a pretty decent and caring father. Decent uncle? Maybe not as decent. I he worked know. on it. <laughs> anyway, um, I, it, it's just slightly different when... Zelda is adopted by Ashika and raised to um, raised in that culture for a period of a few years. Yeah, definitely as a kid and having a lot of random theories about Ocarina of Time, I would assume that uh, Zelda did a lot more, you know, running around as a kid. And I guess that would be under the the similar disguise. And of course, then there's also the theories that Sheik is another person who's sharing Zelda's body. What? You've never heard that one. You've never heard that? No. You've never heard that Sheik is actually a man who Zelda shares her body with? I've never heard that Or just an entirely separate person? Have you heard of those theories? No. Oh. Well, back in the day. (laughs) Oh, Christ. I feel like we've really failed you here, Crystal. Back in the day, especially, I would say, younger players who were, were... not getting the way that the game was implying and hinting at things, really liked Sheik as this mysterious guy. The fact that Ruto referred to Sheik as a young man was a point of contention. And then uh, when you want uh, to make romances where boys are kissing other boys... Listen, the BL Yaoi movement was just different back in the years between 1998 and 2005. It, was it used to be, it, it might still be somewhat, but it especially used to be really toxic against female characters. So it was like the absolute worst when the revelation that you're a cute guy to kiss Link was supposedly not a cute guy. It's, you know, that girl ruining things. If you want to see women doing misogyny, use the Wayback Machine to read Zelda fan forms at the time. Good heaven. Yeah, I think. Especially these days, there's a lot more interesting views of, you know, what Sheik means with respect to Zelda, that she would choose that disguise. Uh, a lot more interesting, a lot less misogynist. Yeah. The Yowie paddle years were just harrowing from all angles. God, Crystal, was that before your time? 
No, I, I remember the Yaoi paddle. I wasn't I wasn't too deep into Fujo culture at the time, though. Okay. I, but, Cam got dragged to a few conventions. <laughs> the Fujoshi truly have a rich history. They do. I yes. saw, I saw the last vestiges of the wild of Yaoi paddles in the wild before they were banned altogether. Because back at the back at the time, they were banned from Anime North because people would run up and SWAT cosplayers cosplaying as male characters on the behind with them. I see. That did happen. That was real. I hope it's better. I have not been to a convention in quite a while. We should go to one at some point. Just go to the artist alley. Yeah. And see how the kids mind. are how the kids are doing with the cosplay now. Cosplay technique has come so far. Yeah. It's become so much more I'm not gonna say professional, though there are now pros. The craft has yeah, but it, it makes me feel a little bit bad for like kids that just want to do it because there's such a wide gap, like in terms of money, material, especially money. I mean, closet skill. closet cosplay is still its own subculture. Yeah. But like you can look online and here's this person who has done a professional ass photo shoot with professional videographers or ca- uh, photographers, you know, crafting or having somebody else craft their outfit and weapons maybe entirely separate people or teams and 3d printing whereas here i am a kid my parent took me to michael's or joanne's for five minutes and i've got some you know silly body to mold things it's it's a very wide gap that's true it didn't used to be i think it did just not quite as wide there were very few people who could do it you ever been to an anime con crystal I've been to an anime con or two in my time, yeah. I figured probably, but... You're close to some of the really big ones. Am I? I think. Actually, no, I'm bad with American geography. That's okay. the big ones? There's one in Baltimore. Baltimore's quite far away from where Crystal (laughs) is. I never figured out where Baltimore is, and I've been to that one. It's in Maryland on the East Coast. Yeah, but Baltimore's by the ocean. Crystal is about as far from the ocean as one can geographically get on this continent. Hold on, I'm pulling up a map. I don't I don't think Crystal's got like the Midwest hasn't got a whole ton of anime convention. It's got OhioCon. Monica, that it's not okay. oh. Ask me anything about US geography. Uh how f- long would it take you to drive to Baltimore from where <laughs> you are? Probably like uh 5 hours. Oh, I would have thought more, but yeah, that makes sense. That's not at all where I thought uh, Baltimore was. Sweetheart. And that's not at all where I thought your state was, Christa. My love. <laughs> we, we've we been to Ohio before, you and I. I. You didn't know where it was when you no, went No, I didn't. The airplane just took you there. No, it's, we drove. It's the heart of it all. But Oh, yeah. Is that what people in Ohio say about Ohio? They sure do. That sounds like something the tourist board would say. It's, uh, hmm, I guess I'm thinking about Ontario, so everything, <laughs> Ontario's connected to a bunch of different Oh, Jesus, states. okay. Everything's connected to so Ontario, everything huh? connected to Ontario is on the east, shall Wrong. we say. <laughs> you Ontario are not- is across the lake from Ohio. Yeah, see? <laughs> Ontario isn't even, like, what, is it the third most eastern province? It's the no. province where everything is. Not. Is it the fourth most eastern province? Yeah, probably closer to that. Okay. And yes, like a third of all Canadians live in Ontario. That's true. But you got to watch them Ontarians. They get a real big head, big head about it, Crystal. 
There's BC. That's there's on the west. Edmonton. There's Manitoba. True. There's Ontario. There's yep. maritime provinces. That is a few of them, yes. Uh, Yukon. Yeah, that's the Yukon Territory. Yeah. Uh, some of the other northern ones, and that's Canada, right? You know what? You've got most of it. You cannot forget Quebec. You did and, so. Oh, and Quebec, obviously. No, no, Sid, now there's a lot of people who argue that Quebec isn't Canada. That, that would be a True. foolish thing to say. They are subjects of the King of Canada, Oh, Charles okay. III. Nobody's happy with that one. Oh, apparently, uh, Justin Trudeau is pretty happy to be a subject of the King of Canada, Charles III. I wish Justin Trudeau would Justin True go away. Yeah. Justin True Doe Homer sound. His name kind of does lend itself to that, unfortunately. He is a true Doe. I don't know what that means. Chris, I would love to see you draw a map of Canada at some point. Monica? Yes. I'd love to see you draw a map of America. Sure. I think Monica would do better than me. I don't think you understand, Crystal. The only reason she knows where I'm from is because it looks like a foot. It's true. It's the bottom of the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. I think I only, of the continental U.S., definitively know... You know California. I know California. Texas. I know, yes, Texas, thank you. Louisiana. Louisiana and Florida. Yes, those are the four. I can't be exactly sure where New York is. I know it's over there. Do you know what the Rust Belt is? It's in the center. It's basically the part that's around Ontario. Oh, I had that wrong. I also used to think that there was a state called New England. Now, Monica, you can't just be going telling Crystal about conversations we had a week ago. <laughs> New England refers to various states northeast of New York. Yeah, I, I learned that afterwards because I kept on going like, okay, well, they talk about New England. It's it's definitely a state. I've never really tried to pin it on a map. It's it's over on the the east side. And then with the way you hear people talk about it, the Midwest U.S. must be like the Northwest Territories in Canada. Only in the center. Well, the Midwest. Yeah, it's in the center. No one knows what the Midwest is. Okay. Americans have no idea what the Midwest is. There are several sub-regions of the Midwest also, because Plains Midwest is different from Great Lakes Midwest. And then also crosses over with the Rust Belt, which kind of crosses over into the Northeast. I'm not even sure which state is like on the top. The Northwest is like Washington. Yeah, it is, is Washington. A state. Yes, yeah. Washington. Not to be and confused Was- with Washington D.C., which is right, on the Washington- other side of the country. <laughs> right, and I don't know where on the other side. It's- like, if you say where is D.C., I would say, well, it's going to be north of Florida. True. And I guess south of New York. True. But I don't know where <laughs> along that other. There seems to be a quite large range there. It's very close to Baltimore, which is in Maryland. Which I never located. Yes. <laughs> okay. Cool. Sorry for the digression, and sorry, uh, geography nerds and Americans. That nobody minds. If an American minds listening to this, they don't listen to this podcast in the first place. It, that you have fifty separate shapes and then concepts to worry about. It's to a Canadian, it's a lot. Americans are not allowed to be mad at foreigners not knowing enough about America because everyone knows too much already. It's true. We are the great, like, cultural exporters of the past hundred years, and we do it almost as an act of soft imperialism. The only part that annoys me is that .gov is U.S. government, and the U.S. loves to name, like, this is the, the treasury or whatever, Without really defining of the United States. 
or the Department of Defense of the United States. And then when you're looking for the Canadian one, you're like, oh, surely this one. But it's not. It's you guys. People in other countries have longer URLs. Uh Uh-huh. They don't get to just have .com. That's fucked up. That is fucked up. Except for the UK. They can take their co.uk and like it. Okay. Next email. (laughs) I'm sorry to all of our UK... (laughs) I'm sorry to all of our UK listeners... But all of them are also nodding along because they know what they did. Hello, Cameron, Crystal, and Monica. I love the pod. I've listened to them all and love the series more because of it. Here's my question. The Master Sword and Tears of the Kingdom. I'm curious about the power of the Tears of the Kingdom Master Sword in relation to Breath of the Wild and other games in the series. This sword initially is almost destroyed and is scoffed at by Ganon, even though it sealed the darkness last time or last game. The sword itself has quite the story arc going through time with Zelda and then being retrieved by Link in the new future. This is even crazier when you factor in that the sword can transport itself, which you've covered previously. How long was the sword possessed by Zelda in both dragon form and not? Was was Zelda's possession in dragon form working as an active agent? As Light Dragon, was she pouring light power into the sword this whole time building its power or was she just holding it? Is this the most powerful Master Sword to date? If so, it sure doesn't feel like it in gameplay since its energy can run out in what feels like the same amount of time as the original Breath of the Wild Sword before you power it up. Thank you. This is from Michael. Well, here we have a classic example of ludonarrative dissonance. Where it does seem like Zelda was pouring light energy into the sword for one million years. And yet, it's not that strong. It does the exact same damage as the previous one. Yep. But it can redirect specifically uh, Demon King Ganon's balls of dark, gloomy magic things, where the previous version could not. That's true. Here's the question. Is it the same Master Sword as in every other game? It, yeah, it has to be, right? Does it have to be? Is it possible that, obviously this is the same one as was created in Skyward Sword, but is the one created in Skyward Sword the same one as in, say, Ocarina of Time or Link to the Past? Is it obviously the same sword? Phi talks in Tears of the Kingdom. Phi is a computer program. Right, but the computer program exists in the Master Sword and Skyward Sword and doesn't seem to exist in other versions of the sword is what I'm driving at. But there have to be two swords ex- that exist at once, even though they're the same sword. At least two, yes. But what I'm suggesting here is that this might not be the same Master Sword as is used in Ocarina of Time. Who made that one? Possible that the Ancient Sages made it. Um, I forget what the exact... What was the story behind it in Link to the Past? Was there... The Sages made it. Okay. Well, it could be that one then. So there's at least two versions of the Master Sword, definitively now, or or time bullshit. And one of them is... (laughs) It's like devices that have bluetooth or wi-fi or audio this one has a an audio speaker on it and other ones do not one has alexa and or siri in it and the other model does not do all swords have sword spirits the boomerang in twilight princess had a a fairy spirit in it actually so so does the fairy boomerang in ocarina of time did it talk in wind waker or something no no it doesn't but it mentions hold on Boomerang, Ocarina of Time. But also, the not-talking version could still have, not just a sword spear, but it could still have Fi in it, just not talking. The audio's off. 
She's muted right now. She's okay. trying to talk, but she doesn't realize that the mute button's on. <laughs> oh, no. I may not be remembering correctly with the boomerang. Maybe I was thinking about the fairy bow or something. But um, I, I, would, uh, I would like to suggest that we can't assume that it's all the same Master Sword. That, I guess that's what I was really driving at. Especially because you definitely get the White Sword of the Sky in Tears of the Kingdom. Does that mean there's two time zippers? It may depend. It may be that there's only one time zipper at all. It may be that there's no time zippers. These are, I would like to suggest here on mic, we've already talked about it a little bit off mic, but I'd like to suggest on mic that we are going to have to have an episode, not next week, but the week after, because I'll be busy next weekend, that we'll have to have an episode where we lay out questions that we want answered and work out some of these answers before we even try to amend the timeline. Okay. Questions that Tears of the Kingdom kind of poked up? Yes. Okay. Not just Tears of the Kingdom, but quite a bit of Tears of the Kingdom. Sure. As much as we tried to talk about it and work around it while talking about the game itself, I feel like there's certain ways in which Tears of the Kingdom has absolutely fucked up the timeline. <laughs> was Zelda holding it the whole time and or healing it the whole time? It was on her head, bathing yeah, in her radiant. She held it the whole time and have been healing it the whole time. It was bathing in her radiant dragon energy. If something is embedded in you, are you holding it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Deku Tree's power powered up the Master Sword for five years, and it wasn't holding it. The pedestal was holding it. That's true. Okay, in the same way Zelda's hair is holding it, and resists having it pulled out. Okay, so you can hold a sword by the, the pointy bit. Yes, if okay. you have dragon hair. Sure. Okay, so I guess... Yeah, I would say that she's been healing it the whole time. It's not any stronger, but it was really wrecked at the start of the game. Okay, let's address this question. Is this the strongest Master Sword to date? Crystal, as a respected member of the power scaling community, I feel like you're most qualified to answer this. I'm trying to think of other... I guess it is, but not by that much, you know? I mean, the one you most you would most directly compare it to is the Breath of the Wild version, right? Yeah. And when you finish the Trial of the Sword, the Breath of the Wild version lasts for about 190 hits. That's a lot of hits. Whereas this one, by default, I think lasts for like 30 or 40 hits. But this one can reflect uh, gloom beams. That's true. It can reflect gloom beams. That does happen. But I also feel like the Master Sword could dispel darkness in Twilight Princess by absorbing the power of the sun or the soul. That's not a new thing. Is it stronger with Demon King Ganon? Is it strong where it counts? Because Zelda, as a dragon, she's got to prioritize. She's not looking for making the Master Sword stronger or uh, more enduring. Or because Link wants to hit a bunch of hoplins. It's just about this one guy over there, and it lasts for that entire fight. Okay, so you're saying she's not buffing its base damage, but she is giving it a lot of anti-Ganondorf buffs. Yes. Okay, in that case, yeah, it's definitely way stronger. It is way stronger, specifically for fighting Demon King Ganondorf. I do think it should be noted, however, that this Demon King Ganondorf can get his ass beat with any weapon. I guess, more specifically, not against Demon King Ganondorf, but the dragon. Oh, the dark dragon? Yes. Could any other weapon pierce the dark dragon? Well, piercing the dark dragon? Maybe. I think that you can actually test that. Piercing the uh, secret stone? I don't know. The secret know. stone. Can, can anything else break a secret stone? I don't know. Could the Master Sword 
destroy the Triforce. Is this a can somebody heat a, is can God heat the burrito so hot that they can't touch it? Crystal's not old enough to know that joke, Monica. I know that joke. Oh, okay, okay. Because <laughs> it's a pretty good joke. The best part of the joke is how troubled Ned is by it. Yes. I think that you could, the Triforce could design a Master Sword to destroy itself. Well, the question, how did Low Rule destroy its own Triforce? Using the Triforce. With the Apprentice Sword. <laughs> you think that they <laughs> they wished on the Triforce to destroy? Oh, no, I, the I, I got sword. it. Okay, They used sorry. the Apprentice Sword to destroy the Triforce. I got it. Okay, thank you. Yes, okay. The, appre- the Apprentice Sword, the Low Rulean version of the Master Sword. Got it. Boo. <laughs> That's what a ghost how, says. How pissed off would you be if you inherited low rule and it's like, we really fucked it up here. This is your problem now. Oh, Hilda's parents were executed by Hilda for that shit that they did. I guess at the end of the day, it's really just like global warming. Here you go, kids. It's like the Wind Waker. They could not leave them a better world. Alnuma has that anxiety and it comes through a lot. In any game that he's attached to. This episode of the mailbag is where were we? <laughs> um, is the master, but is it stronger than the golden master sword from Triforce of the Gods and Triforce of the Gods 2? Because the golden master sword is four times as powerful as the regular master sword. It can't be as strong as the golden master sword, at least not against basic bacoblins. Yeah. Uh, the golden master sword, you only have to hit Hinoxes like once or twice and they just explode. Exactly. What about, what about, I can't remember Link to the Past anymore. Do you still need the silver arrows in that one? Yes, absolutely. Okay, but it can't. so it can't defeat Ganon. Not by itself. Okay. Definitively not stronger against Ganons. Well, I mean... No. It can strip his defenses four times as fast. Sure. It def- strips the defenses of the Triforce from him. And Link to the Past, the special aspect of the weapon... And Twilight... It, Tears of the Kingdom, it's an anti-Demon King sword. And Link to the Past, it's an anti-Triforce sword. Which I think is actually a little bit cooler. He did have the whole thing there. He did. The end. Thank you for the email. Crystal, do you need to take a break? No, I can keep going. Awesome. Okay, I think this next one is yours. This one is a joke, so we'll save that one. Okay. Um, Dear Medora Gang, first time question writer here. I know it's a lore podcast, but I'm interested in a gameplay slash technical aspect of Tears of the Kingdom. Last episode, you talked about the Zora weapons increasing in power when Link is wet. Do you have any useful slash favorite weapon combos that you used over and over? That is to say, if they broke or otherwise ran out of juice, you made it a priority to acquire another as soon as possible? For me, it was a sword fusion that I used exclusively for Lionel's. Once I started using it, I always had one in my inventory. The weapon takes advantage of the fact that Royal Guard broadswords double in power once they're degraded and are about to break. Also, melee weapons used while on the back of a Lynel will never degrade further, nor break. Here's the weapon. Find an unblemished Royal Guard Claymore in the depths and bring it to its breaking point. Then, fuse it with a silver Lynel horn. The resulting blade will have an attack of 200 or more, but will break after a handful of hits. Unless... You use it exclusively while on a Lionel's back, in which case it will last forever. I farmed many a Lionel with this weapon. Parry and stun in the normal way, then climb on, switch to this beast, and wail away. Anyway, thanks for the show. Can't wait for the revisit of the timeline. Rain God. Thanks, Rain God. Thank you. Crystal, did you have any such weapons? 
No, but this is much smarter, a much smarter way to play than I played, which is just using anything. <laughs> now, Monica, I know that you had some weapons that you like to keep. Yes, I had this um, Lionel Poker uh, Claymore. That's true, you I did. I used it, yes. That was great. Um, I think that most of what I like to do was I had the uh, light scale trident with a silver lionel horn stuck on the end of it, and I would just get wet and poke people. And that'd be good for like 70 pokes, 90 pokes. And then you'd do the repair thing. Yes, then I would do the repair thing. So I guess that's my little bit of thing that I would do. Otherwise, I did it mostly like you, Crystal, and I only brought out the light scale poker when it was just really, uh, I was ready to end an encounter right then and there. And you use Sidon to get wet? Yes, most of the time. But if Sidon wasn't around, I would throw one of the uh, water fruit at my feet or whatever. So I guess this next one is probably mine. Yes. Okay. Here's another one from Rain God. Hi. It's about an hour since I sent you my first question. And now I have another. Sometime before the game released, IGN, whatever it was called back then, posted an article claiming that scientists had discovered a parallel world. Oh, sorry, this is about Majora's Mask. Here's another podcast question, Majora's Mask. So sometime before the game released, IGN, whatever it was called back then. What was it called back then? Oh, this was after the N64.com days, which is what... The Imagine Games Network? Yes, but back then they were N64. Like, at the start, back in 96, they were N64.com. Oh. And at this point, it probably would have been IGN 64 to differentiate it from IGN PlayStation and maybe... IGN Dreamcast or IGN Sega. I forget what the naming scheme was, but this would have been IGN 64. Sometime before the game released, IGN posted an article claiming that scientists had discovered a parallel world. According to their reporting, the moon of that world was about to crash. Almost IGN's article linked to an external website, supposedly the home page for the Science Institute that had achieved this breakthrough. On that site, you'd find a brief article announcing the research and probably a few other places to link around. The Institute site updated a few times with new developments, maybe one to three updates in total. As the story of the other world unfolded, it became more obvious that this was Zelda marketing. But early on in the saga, someone had checked the site's registration and realized it was owned by Nintendo of America, or another Nintendo entity, which let the cuckoo out of the bag. Importantly, neither Almost IGN nor the Institute homepage initially identified this as anything to do with Nintendo or Zelda. It was played straight, at least until the site registration clue was found. Remember, this was the late 90s. Such weird marketing was entirely new. It wasn't quite an ARG, but I think future ARGs, like I Love Bees, evolved directly from this. Wow, just reading I Love Bees gave me such a, like, I... Nostalgia? I am, I went through a time machine. I wouldn't say nostalgia. I wasn't a fan of I Love Bees myself, but I remember it. I'm sorry I'm being so vague. It's not intentional. I just don't remember. I can't find anything about this online, and haven't ever heard it talked about on gaming podcasts. So here's my question. Do any of you remember this? Also, is this proto-ARG canon, and can you work it into the timeline? Cheers, Rain God. I've never heard of this before, and I also can't find anything about it. I gotta be completely real. I don't remember this either. I don't remember this website either, though it seems in line with the marketing materials for Majora's Mask. In particular, the whole, like... The world's ending in three days. Cur- the, that, that commercial That really series. quiet one, right. Surely on the Wayback Machine, you'd be able to retrieve anything. No, I unfortunately, I don't remember this, but I'd like to put this as 
a formal request from the Book of Medora to all of our listeners. If you know what rain god is talking about, please write in with an email because I, I and if you have a Wayback Machine link or something, send it to us. I'd love confirmation that this is real and I'd love to see it. Yes, I'd really, really like to see this. We love this weird apocrypha with regards to old websites and advertisements and it's just it would just be so cool i'm seeing some references on reddit to the arg style websites for nintendo for majora's mask i haven't actually delved through uh, especially because it seems to be linked to a, a youtube video which is going to be quite long and padded in the way of things so okay well we can watch that video later yeah and, i'll screen through it and, later and please update us next time we do a recording okay it was definitely very fun marketing at the time that they were alluding to the this world ending crystal do you remember any of that at all this would have been when you were like six or seven right i remember the commercials right yeah what it makes me think of is uh Omega Ruby Alpha Sapphire. Huh? Oras of the Pokemon. Oh? Where there's a parallel world. You're actually in a parallel world and the other one got could have been destroyed. Right, yes. Because the DS versions of those games, or 3DS, I forget, occur on a parallel timeline to the Game Boy Advance originals. Or a parallel universe. Sure. Uh-huh. I forgot that there was a Pokemon multiverse that's canonical to the games. That's true. I wonder if tri- people tried to make a timeline of it. Anybody who knows, please do not send it. <laughs> Monica, I think you're up next with the Zora Magics. Okay. Zora Magics. Dear, dear Book of Medora podcast, in the Tears of the Kingdom episode covering Sidon's quest and Zora's domain, questions are brought up about how the weird water magic works how water is created, and briefly how Mifa and Yona can heal wounds. I'm going to answer the second question first, as it's simpler. They're doing extremely advanced bloodbending. Living creatures, maybe not Gorons, are largely water, and perhaps they're simply bloodbending on a microscopic level, pulling cells together to catch platelets and accelerate blood clotting and other such things. Next, the first question. Water is made out of two components, oxygen and hydrogen. Both are present in an Earth-like atmosphere, and notably, hydrogen is more prevalent in the upper atmosphere due to being less dense and lighter weight. That's just rocket fuel. If we hand-wave some technology for causing the reaction and harnessing its energy, maybe funneling it into some ambient electrical energy that handles gravitational fields, keeping the sky islands afloat and providing the low gravity areas, that ends up being the source of the sky water and could lead to how Sidon produces water, especially if the hand-wave technology was of the nano variety and could be passed genetically. I'm not even going to try and do any real estimation on whether the mass conversions are plausible. That is an exercise for the reader, and I am too lazy to do more than spout conjecture. Thanks so much. I always look forward to future episodes. Lucas. Thank you, Lucas. Okay, so the first part, (laughs) the the bloodbending. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That makes sense, I guess. I think that of the versions, you if you if you have the kind of eye toward fantasy where you look at magic and you go, I need to know how this works on the molecular level, then this explanation fits with that world. I really like it 
because it instills that old traditional D&D fantasy thing where dwarves are resistant to magic. And it's like, okay, well, there's less less water in them. Okay. <laughs> the Gorons, they have less right, water I got in them. It. They're, they're more resistant to being healed. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> uh-huh. What's the other half? What? Oh, okay. But what about that uh, What about that second part there, Crystal? That they're using air as rocket fuel to keep the islands up? No, that they're taking free-floating hydrogen and oxygen atoms to create new water molecules and using the energy produced by that reaction to keep the islands afloat. Is this fusion? No, it's not. It's specifically not. And I think that that reaction would actually absorb energy rather than produce it, but I don't actually know that. Right, because to do that, you need to break the O2 double bonds, and then you need to stick some hydrogen onto the O's, which is not a trivial process. No. And there are hydrogen molecules just free-floating single hydrogen atoms? It's hydrogen gas. I never took much of chemistry. Okay, so a hydrogen molecule is two hydrogen atoms, so you have to break the bond between two hydrogen atoms. Yeah. And then, or is it just that you take that H2 and then you add a single oxygen atom to it? No, because the you, you do need to break the H2 bond, which is less difficult, and then put the O in there. I just feel like that would not produce energy. But it would be hard to make this an efficient reaction. I'm not a chemist. <laughs> Crystal, I think you're the most sciencey of of us three. Yeah, I've taken a couple chemistry classes. <laughs> well, that definitely puts you ahead. Uh-huh. So this is not what you would call an exothermic reaction. No. Probably not. Is it all nanomachines, son? What if uh he just what if all matter is made of uh fire, water, earth, and air? <laughs> and he just takes some of the water molecules and makes water everything's made out of the four so says um aristotle or whoever yeah this is the is the air made out of all four this is the aristotelian uh version of it no the air is just air then we're nitrogen and earth molecule under the aristotelian uh system i don't think it would be no it's it's it because there aren't individual molecules it's just air it's just air the It's Not a Machine Sun is is Armstrong? Yes, that is Armstrong for Metal Gear Solid Revengeance. Sorry, Metal Gear Revengeance. It's not actually a Metal Gear Solid game because Solid Snake is not in it. I mean, the easier way to make the sky water is just to concentrate water vapor from the air. That would be the simplest yes. way to do it. But, I mean, you could also have, like, a uh, matter transference system where it's sort of like a portal or a wormhole that takes water from the bottom of, say, the Zora Reservoir and warps it upward to the waterfall above Zora's Reservoir. So the water levels remain more or less constant. It's just also always in motion. But then you wouldn't call it the source of your water. You would if you don't know what's happening. Mm. Look, it doesn't have to make perfect scientific sense. It's a fantasy setting. Monica doesn't accept this. I can see it in her face. She feels that this is a lazy abdication of our need to examine the text how would nanomachines work in pulling water fuck me <laughs> what do nanomachines run on force gem power <laughs> force gem power okay 
I don't know what they run on. The heat produced by your body? The electrical signals of your nervous system? I, I, I don't know. Fish. No, that doesn't seem very correct. Zora eat fish. Zora do eat fish. <laughs> Zora do eat fish. That's true. That's canonical. I have nothing else. I'm kind of lost. I think they use magic. <laughs> as much as I like this idea of hereditary nanomachines being passed down. I'm glad you like it because it's anathema to me. How would that work? I think I they just concentrate the water vapor like Frozone. Yeah. Yeah. Like Frozone from The Incredibles. That's right. There is no moisture in this air. <laughs> but they can, uh, Sidon or Shadow Sidon can magic this even in like the lava cores of the earth. But maybe Shadow Sidon is pulling from where real Sidon is. Hold on. Right. Yes. The, the, the projection of the sage's power. Right. Yes. Okay. Did you forget what I was talking about? Shadow Sidon is a hell of a way to refer to it. How would you talk about it? I would go back and look at how, what words they actually use to refer to the projections of the sage's powers. Okay. Crystal, regarding the monsters that attacked Luralin Village. In Tears of the Kingdom Part 10, y'all mentioned that the pirates do not respawn in Luralin. I consider whether they aren't connected to the Demon King. My suggestion is that they are respawning with the Blood Moon, but they respawn at their spawn point the same way monsters on their little fortresses do. And that spawn point is an island too far from the coast to swim back. And the boats they stole at that island to get to Luralin are obviously now at Luralin. So now they're all marooned at the island they respawned at, and that's why we don't see them again. Always with love, Cordelia. Cordelia is absolutely correct here. Ah, and that explains it for Eventide as well. Yes. How do you feel about that, Crystal? That makes a lot of sense to me. That's just a perfect explanation. There's no obvious holes in it, and it... It does describe the phenomena that we uh, that we observe. Good thing they're pirates and traveled for this. Yes, maybe pirates they are. are awesome. Pirates are awesome. Pirates are pretty good. You ever see that thing about how pirates actually had a very flat command structure? That's right. Isn't that interesting? You had to to steal to steal from the crown, or to get paid by the crown to steal from another crown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You I had... really liked the concept of workers' comp. Yes. You could get paid a lot better as a pirate than you could as a legal sailor. That's true. This one comes in from Eduardo. Kia ora. This isn't a Zelda-related comment, but I wanted Crystal to know that I appreciate the reference you made to the myth of the Roman Empire falling in the 5th century in the first episode of the Tears of the Kingdom section, particularly in the context of a discussion on colonialism. Don't feel to feel the need to read this on an episode or anything, but it always makes me happy when people, particularly people in the West, acknowledge the medieval Roman Empire in the East even when the Western kingdoms of Europe spent centuries trying to erase its history. On a Zelda note, I can't wait to see how you rescue the timeline from the bonfire Nintendo threw it into. Cheers, Eduardo. Well, you're getting red anyway. Can you imagine hearing that the Pope had crowned Charlemagne Holy Roman Empire? Being like, <laughs> oh, they're coping. They're coping so hard. <laughs> God, yeah, I guess so. Boy. Eastern Orthodoxy has really been erased from Western consciousness, hasn't it? Yeah, a little bit. I think just in the everyday, like, Hollywood and layperson sense, historians seem like they have it well underhand. Um, that's true, but historians don't communicate directly with people in a lot of cases. These things are perhaps known in academia, but it's not part of Western storytelling. <laughs> 
I've been watching a lot of the streamer Northern Lion recently, and I just keep thinking of a line he had where he's like, I hate talking about history because all the Europeans in my chat are like, you're wrong about history. And all the North Americans are like, how do you know so much about history? (laughs) (laughs) Which stream is this? Northern Lion, a Canadian streamer. Ah. Huh. Uh Huh. Huh. Monica has gone. Every huh she made was a new facial expression as she tried to work through her feelings about this uh, conversation. I don't know how I feel about this. But that, that sentence makes a lot more sense coming from a Canadian. I was I was thinking about this the other day, yesterday. Cameron, you'll have to remind me about the context. Okay. Which was that scientists and historians and academics in general should take be required to take a few more uh, courses in how to communicate to lay people and essentially market their... Okay, Monica, I have very bad news. (laughs) Yes? This isn't a conversation that we had. This is one of those that you had in your head and thought you talked to me about. (laughs) That does happen very often. But no, we we were talking about something Uh that made me think about this. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I don't remember what that context would have been. Oh, are you sure? Yeah, I think so. But yeah, it, it takes away from, well, no, I'm not absolutely sure. But I know that takes away from the idea of like academic purity and studies and whatever. But is it any good if the average idiot doesn't hear of it or doesn't understand it? I mean, I do think that historians try to communicate to the public. It's just that, well, so, some communicate better than others. Yeah. And some are allowed to communicate better than others. It's difficult to communicate meaningful historical perspective when the overarching uh, cultural push is away. Mm. Well, maybe I, amending my statement, like, not requiring... You're not going but... to teach real history in a place that's run by, like, uh, Florida's governors, for instance. No. I And I don't mean in a school setting. That's not the easiest way to communicate to larger groups of people. I think it is. I think that should be, in theory, the purpose Not of when there's many different school systems all tied up in uh, state, country, continental politics. Okay. But as an optional matter, I think offering extended talks on scientific communication to wider audiences essentially marketing or making your own you know podcast or something like that is actually a very helpful i mean there are a lot of history podcasts out there There are and there's like doctors and lawyers who are making their thing but i always feel like it's like the 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 people who why isn't hollywood making shit about real history real shit history is so interesting i don't know if they're like ideal people of their profession to speak out ah this is not aimed at anyone in particular oh my more generic (laughs) not calling out any specific monica's like you nerds need to take an elocution class no but like the the depth of their their knowledge in the specific supposed expertise I mean, I the problem know. with Hollywood history is that you have to adapt history into like a narrative structure, mm-hmm. uh, which can't really capture the fact that history is like a million things happening at once, all influencing each other. That's true. That's very true. Yeah. A history YouTuber I like is called Pre-Modernist, who has uh, videos about this exact exact subject about the 
historiography about when Rome fell. Oh, the pre-modernist. Okay, I'll tell you what. Let me write that down real quick. Some some say it fell in 1922 with the fall of the Ottoman Empire. That sounds like a thing that wouldn't that would be difficult to difficult to argue seriously. I mean, the Ottoman Emperor called himself the Kaiser of Rome. That is what they said, and Kaiser is a lot closer to how Caesar would actually be pronounced. What is Rome anyway? Is Rome a, a land? Is Rome a, a system of government? Is it a legal system? Who knows? Were the Ottomans a Roman dynasty? What an interesting question. The history of Iran, a primer, the real reasons European colonialism was possible. This is some interesting, short, digestible length videos that we've got here. Yeah. Yeah. I like when things aren't too padded out in the all YouTube videos. It does make me think of things like, uh, look a little bit further, further east or around the globe. And when you get to, like, Asian histories, that shit's complicated. I like pre-modernist because he's very clear about that. There is no one history. There's a lot of different history told from a lot of different perspectives and biases. Mm-hmm. And the only way you can get an idea of history is to is to, to hear from people who are very honest about their biases and try to think about them writing from their perspective and try to, like interpolate things from different perspectives i'll tell you what crystal when we're done recording i'm going to watch uh rome didn't fall when you think it did no one even agrees on when the west rome fell sometime in the fifth century perhaps one of those years history is so interesting i'm taking history courses um as i work my way back to university and boy i didn't like history much when i was in high school but it is fascinating to me as an adult it's because high school's a bad place to learn things high school is an is an awful place to learn things really i don't know why we expect kids to like learn so much there university doesn't seem like it's super great for learning certain things either until you hit a certain age no i would say i got better at learning things once i left school <laughs> absolutely now yeah. that now that i'm in my 30s going back to school and having university courses is a breeze because i've learned how to learn and i feel bad for all the kids Kids, I promise it gets easier. In short, consider a gap year or years. Um, you know, if you can afford that sort of thing. If you're considering going to university. Yeah, gotta. And then some people are forced to take a gap year. Oh, I know, but it's also a lot easier for some people to go back than others. Yeah. Because there's certain um, considerations. Yeah. It, It can be harder to get into university. Like the admissions get a lot stricter when you take gap years. Yeah. Anyway, thank you, Eduardo. This was a. I'm very glad that we got to go down this particular line of conversation. I'm learning about Zenobia. I think that telling Rome that you're no longer part of the Roman Empire may be the most girl boss move in history. I mean, they could have recognized the Goths as the legitimate rulers of Rome. Uh, but the they problem could. is the, the Christianity business. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. There's so many different factors going on with what's going on in Rome that you're only getting this little tiny piece of it. Which is also kind of kind of the issue with the East versus West thing. It's like Greek versus Latin. Yeah. Is it my turn? Yes. Okay. Crystal, how far do you want to go in this episode? Um, Let's do two more. Okay, sure thing. Hello, and thank you all for the great podcast. In your episode discussing the mysterious hat, 
It was mentioned that the name Picori may be derived from the same word as Piccolo from Dragon Ball Z. I thought it was worth mentioning that Piccolo also comes from the sky. Oh, I know where this is going, and I don't like it. He's the nephew of Kami, who lives on a structure that reaches above the sky. Kami is later absorbed by Piccolo through metempsychosis, an ability shared by all Namekians, the alien race they belong to, who also created Dragon Ball. Piccolo's father, Mr. Piccolo, is also referred to as a demon king. Do you think this could explain the mysterious references to a distant nebula and Christianity in early Zelda lore? Love, Celeste. P.S. Oh, there's some Zelda jokes. Oh my gosh. We're not going to look at them. Yeah. We're not looking. Okay. Okay, so have you internalized this Celeste framing of this, of Piccolo? Yeah. Wait, no, not. I didn't watch that much Dragon Ball. So Piccolo has a dad called Mr. Piccolo. No, Mr. Piccolo. Piccolo-san is what Gohan calls Piccolo Jr. The Piccolo, who, who Celeste refers to as uh, Mr. Piccolo, is Piccolo Dai Mao, the Demon King Piccolo. Okay. But so, it's the so, same person or not? <laughs> this is exactly what I mean by, you know, you have to have different perspectives when you're telling history because I... I wouldn't say that this is wrong, but I would tell it in a different way. I would also tell it in a different way. Crystal, tell How me the history of Dragon Ball. You go first, Cameron. Okay. So the way it works is like this, Monica. There was one person, and we'll call him Piccolo. Okay. And this, They're an alien. He's an alien. He comes to Earth. And in order to become the guardian of the Earth, he builds up his inner peace and his power and expels all the evil out of himself and now there is piccolo who becomes kami the guardian of the earth and the evil that he expelled from himself becomes the demon king piccolo now the sole bearer of the name piccolo okay why did uh original guy want to be the guardian of the earth oh my god this is such a okay okay that's kind of the side point okay so one person split into two the the goodness and the the badness. badness the badness is killed and when he is killed, he spits out an egg, reincarnating, more or less, into his own son, Piccolo Jr. So okay. now there is Piccolo Jr., the reincarnation of the evil half of Kami. And okay. later, Kami and Piccolo Jr. merge into each other to form a new person, or the original person, if you want. The Piccolo that came out from an egg, is was, it... He was not as evil as his previous Yeah, self. how'd that happen? I guess it's literally like an actual child rather than the same person. Well, he comes out pretty evil, but he's not as evil as his previous self because of how reincarnation works. Crystal, could you tell this to me? Okay, since Cameron told it chronologically, I'm going to try to tell it in the order it was told in in the story. Okay. So the first Piccolo we meet is Demon King Piccolo. Uh Uh-huh. Who was introduced as the Demon King who was sealed away by Master Roshi. Okay. A long time ago. Oh, wait, or was it Master Roshi's master? I think it was Master Roshi's master. Okay, yes. So the Demon King Piccolo wakes up. Goku kills him. But before he dies, he spits out an egg, which contains Piccolo Jr., who is referred to both as a son or a reincarnation of, Pic- of Demon King Piccolo. Okay. Then Goku goes to the sky and meets Kami, God of Earth who reveals that a long time ago, there was one guy named the Nameless Namekian, and he split himself off into his good half and his evil half. And the good half became God, and the bad half became the devil, Demon King Piccolo. 
So Goku fights Piccolo Jr. Piccolo Jr. lives and then ends up raising Goku's son, Gohan, after Goku dies. And through raising Gohan, Piccolo Jr., henceforth referred to simply as Piccolo, becomes a good guy. Okay. Later, they all go to planet Namek, where the nameless Namekian is originally from, and Piccolo fuses with another Namekian named Nail to become stronger. And then eventually they all go back to Earth, and Piccolo fuses with Kami to become even stronger again, to fight a new guy. (laughs) To fight a new guy. I mean, that's so accurate, but when you put it that way, it sounds so silly. (laughs) So, like, there's more more bits than the original bit. <laughs> As end- of, yes, there's now more bits than the nameless Namekian had. And is this a usual thing for Namekians? Um, it could be, but we don't see a, a ton of other Namekians. It is a possible biological process, but it's framed as being fairly unusual. Do we see, like... Female Namekians? They are a monosex race. Then that makes a lot of sense for this whole, like, we can we can fuse together, we can break apart, we can make an egg if we want to sort of, you know, reproduce or clone ourselves without uh, doing any of the fusing and dividing thing. Yes. This is so kind of not, a... Go ahead. As of the most recent movie, Dragon Ball Super Superhero, oh, in which Piccolo is the main character... There are people who refer to him as Demon King Piccolo or as Kami. And his response to that is, that's not me. That's who I used to be. Hmm. Interesting. Which is a bit of a different framing than referring to him as Demon King Piccolo's son. Does anyone try to call him Nail or Nell? No. Nobody on Earth knows who Nail is. Okay. But do you think that that Piccolo would identify as Nail as being the person they used to be as well? I, th- I think he would, yes. Okay. I mean, Nail is sometimes portrayed as being a separate voice in Piccolo's head, right? Yes. Though that hasn't been true in like 20 years. The voice persists? For a while. Until Toriyama forgot about it. Until Toriyama forgot about <laughs> as it. Or, or maybe like, you know, you're very different to start at the start of things because you're not fully harmonized. But then you become more the same person after a longer length of time. That is a very cohesive and generous reading of how Toriyama forgot about Nail being a thing. <laughs> Do you know uh, this is like uh, Castlevania Lords of Shadow. Fuck me. Where the, ac- the all the bad guys in that were like these divine sages and they were very awesome people and they got called to heaven. They got like trans whatever lunated to heaven. But then they left this caused a split. They left the bad parts of them behind because the, only the good parts can come to heaven. Yeah. And the bad parts were bad. Yeah, the, it was as evil as it was possible for a person to be. God really shouldn't have taken them to heaven. Anyway, so that's the good bit and the bad bit. But what I'm hearing through Dragon Ball is a very hopeful message that the bad bits can, if not directly improve, but work towards the way to improving itself. Dragon Ball is probably the manga that most believes that villains can be redeemed. Oh, absolutely. Even if you kill a planet or 500. Well... Especially if you kill a planet (laughs) or 500. I think you might also say that maybe Dragon Ball's not very interested in wrestling with the moral question of redemption. You don't think so? 
No, I don't. Why is it's that? Just, it's just something that happens or doesn't. It yeah. happen, It happens for Vegeta. It sort of happens for Piccolo that he didn't actually have all that much to redeem for himself because all he wanted to do was kill Goku. And honestly, who doesn't want to kill Goku? But it doesn't happen for Frieza because he's just an asshole. It happens a little bit for Frieza. Does it? I mean, he's just like around as a background character now. I mean, he's not a good guy, but he's not, you know, he got another chance at life. I mean, do you remember the ending of Dragon Ball Super Broly where Frieza is talking about how um, he'll just work things out however he can? But the entire background to this conversation is him wiping out the native population of a planet so he can turn around and sell it. That's right. He remains the exact same guy. I've got something. I've got something. Okay. So, if we can learn our lessons from Dragon Ball... Oh. ...and place them into The Legend of Zelda... Oh, well, we haven't established that yet. Well, we also have... Well, not nameless, but named entities that came from a distant nebula and wanted to to godify... twice. (laughs) ...the world. Be the lords of this world. And... You know, it is possible that they divided themselves when reaching that world, and then afterwards there's a good bit, Hylia, and then there's the bad bit, which is uh, the various demon kings. Let's just say Ganon, because many of them are Ganon. So there's the good bit, Hylia, she's incarnating down that line. There's the bad bit, uh, you know, Demise, Ganon, also Ganon, Vati... And they're just simply being bad down the line. But any one of them uh, coming back could reform. And they also could fuse back with Hylia. I'm quitting this podcast. A child of Hylia. I quit. Zelda does not believe in in the ability of villains to be redeemed. (laughs) Yeah, That's not a thing that The Legend of Zelda is about. Sonic the Hedgehog is a series (laughs) influenced by Dragon Ball. And in Sonic Adventure... Sonic learns this lesson about chaos because he comes to understand that when chaos was sealed in the Master Emerald, his his pain and his anger didn't go away. It only got worse because he was trapped in there. And he realizes that to trap chaos in the Master Emerald again, that would just put him in an eternal realm of suffering all over again. And then next time he breaks out, it's going to be even worse. That's why you got, you got to let Chaos go after you, you whoop his ass a little bit. And then what happens? What you, does Chaos you give, do? You just give him a good beating and say, okay, don't do that again. And he'll be like, okay. And then Chaos, <laughs> what, leaves? He departs for heaven and peace. You kill Chaos. No. Heaven is an actual physical space to, to reach. No, Crystal was speaking allegorically. <laughs> then what is it? You, you whoop Chaos's ass okay. and Chaos calms down. Okay. That's it. Oh, and just leaves. Just kind for of pisses space. off. Okay. Not through space. Chaos leaves is still over there to the the beach. Chaos is still on the planet somewhere, right? I assume he's in the Chow Garden somewhere. Yeah. Oh, okay. But okay, back to back to Hyrule. I feel like an an, an interpretation of the three goddesses kind of distilling into Hylia and Demon King. They brought much good on the world but also a little bad bit. That works. No. No? I, Why I, not? I think 
it's worth noting that Zelda games do include the purification of some evil spirits, even their redemption, but only sometimes. And it's definitely not the kind of thing you do for the big bad. They just don't believe in the ability of people to change as much as Dragon Ball. I don't know if that's true, because you do help the Sharp Brothers in Majora's Mask, right? Like Majora's Mask is full of you taking people who hurt the people around them and helping them heal so that they stop hurting other people. Skull Kid did reform. That's what Skull Kid is. Right. But, but Majora- Ganon can't do that. Ganon can't do that, because Ganon is just evil. He is Mazuko. He is of the demon tribe. He Demons is Piccolo. <laughs> he is incompatible. Okay, nobody ever tried to get Ganon to raise somebody's kid. Well, there's the, there's your problem. I don't think that's the problem. I Ganon think, just needs a kid. I think that Toriyama <laughs> just wanted to use Piccolo some more because Piccolo is so fucking cool. Ganon surely has kids. Does he? Ganon probably has many daughters. Ocarina of Time, Ganon. It seems likely that Ganon would have daughters, but how would you know? It seems to me that in a society like the Gerudo, you wouldn't keep track of who You wouldn't keep track are. of the father at all. No, no, no. But, like, you know, that seems like a, a duty that... But even, even then, that means that all of the children of the Gerudo are his daughters. Yes. Okay. That seems like... It- that seems like a bad way to to go about reproduction. Why? Because then they're all related. Raising kids communally? Well, it's not like Gerudo can breed with each other. But they go into Castle Town to find boyfriends. So says the Gossip Stone. It's just a problem if, you know, the the hinge point of this this uh child making structure is evil. It's just if if Ganon is is doing is having kids with all the Gerudo that means that all of them are now siblings. No, I don't think that Ganon is having kids with all the Gerudo. Okay. This is actually a point on which Monica and I differ. Though it's it's not... There used to be theories that Ganon was fathers to all the Gerudo who were uh, born in, since he came to manhood. And that was always deeply distasteful. <laughs> to you. Yes. And to anyone with sense. But um, no, I don't, I don't think that Ganon does much fathering. As it were. Well, exactly. That's that's his problem. He's not a good king. But that, and you probably shouldn't put that guy who you do need for the the biological stuff as the king. Just I don't know that default. they need him for biological stuff. Oh, you don't think he? No, I do not think. Okay. I, I said that three times. I don't, I don't know. You, how about you listen to me? <laughs> okay. But you listen to the words I'm saying instead of the words you expect me to say. <laughs> Crystal, what do you think? I don't think Ganon has any kids. I think that all of the Gerudos are his daughters culturally, not biologically. Okay, culturally, sure. And I think that probably, for this to make any sense, every Gerudo is raised by the entire community. We can the kind point of... is, Ganon needs to be on a first-name basis with his granddaughter's preschool teacher. <laughs> we that can kind of see them. the communal raising in tears of the that, God, Crystal, you, you realize that... Dragon Ball Super Superhero has made you good guy Ganon pilled. Yeah. I'm just I just think that would fix him. You but are you truly good guy Ganon pilled or do you just want Piccolo to be in Zelda? I don't think that Ganon can just spontaneously be redeemed, but he could be if he was on a first name basis with his granddaughter's preschool teacher. But perhaps Ganon is Ganon because Ganon will never be on a first name basis with his granddaughter's preschool teacher. 
Yeah, that's the issue. Fundamental incompatibility with that. Hey, how do you feel about people who ship uh, Piccolo and that teacher? They they are very wise. They are they wise. Have a, they have a little bit of a flirtatious energy. They do, is the wild thing about it. I think when you watch it, it's like, yeah, she's a little bit into him, and he's not he's not giving off negative vibes about it. I haven't seen this. It's such a fun, like, it's such a small thing, but it's such a fun character moment. There's some pretty good fan art of it, as I recall. Who wouldn't be into Piccolo? Man, I have never met anyone who wouldn't be into Piccolo. He's the soul of cinema. Basically. He is at least the soul of all good action shonen. Every mentor character in every shonen series is trying and failing to be Piccolo. I like that he blew up the moon. He's That's a, true. He has excellent problem-solving skills. Then the moon came back because Toriyama forgot that he blew it up. The, <laughs> I think that was... Uh, this is the second time the moon was blown up. Or did they wish the moon back and then Piccolo blew it up? I think they wished it back one time and then the other time Toriyama admitted that he forgot. Okay. I mean, somebody else could have just wished on the Dragon Balls, I think right? it pro- That happens they must have. They must have forgotten after Piccolo did it. Because I know... They established in one of those movies, Bulma wishes for very minor things. Yeah, that that was in Dragon Ball Super Broly. Okay, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Where how she would wish for her eyelashes to be half a centimeter longer or whatever the fuck. Just that enough to make so a difference. Awesome. That, I think that latter. I think that Dragon Ball Super sounds incredibly tedious. I've never watched the whole series, but I did read the manga. Deeply tedious. But the movies, the movies have been quite good. Where were we? <laughs> we we were just getting into a new canon where the movies are the basis for understanding the Dragon Ball story, and the manga is tertiary to that. Understanding. No, the emails. Huh? The emails. What emails? We have one last email. Oh, okay. Oh, by the way, thank you, Celeste. Um, I don't think that Piccolo is a pickery. Oh, that's what. Yes, sorry. We What's this got to do with Christianity? Come. Yeah, I don't understand what it has to do because well, it's God and the devil, I guess. But God didn't split evil off from himself to make the devil. It could have. Or did he? Or did he? <laughs> In the context of Hyrule have, and Lords of Shadow. Have the prophets simply been wrong? Possible. No, shut up. And Crystal, I think this last one is yours. Okay. Crystal, Monica, and Cameron. Is Breath of the Wild a retelling of the first Zelda game? And Tears of the Kingdom, a retelling of Zelda 2 Link's Adventure. If so, then maybe the next game would mirror a Link to the Past, and we'll play as the ancient hero Link who gets a Zonai form in The Dark World. I'm not saying these games are necessarily reboots, but Breath of the Wild has some similarities to the first Zelda, the open world and the old man at the beginning. And Zelda 2 Link's Adventure also takes place six years after the first Zelda, beginning with Link's hand glowing. There's also the sleeping Zelda in that game, which could be mirrored by Zelda lost in her dragon form. Maybe this is all a bit of a stretch, but there's also pink-haired Link, and the ancient hero had red hair. A third Switch game could take place in between Breath and Tears, one focused on the Master Sword. It may also fill in some of the gaps in the story from the previous games. Don't know how this would all fit in the timeline, but it's a thought. Thank you for reading this mess and making the podcast. Don't ever stop. Bella. Thank you, Bella. Thank Uh you, Bella. I think that this is a perfectly cogent reading because uh, Breath of the Wild felt like, and I think it was even said to be, it's supposed to be returning to the roots of the first game. 
Yes. So reading Tears of the Kingdom as a redo of Zelda 2, where they try to hew more closely mechanically to its predecessor, also makes sense as a reading. So Link to the Past. What? What? <laughs> Link to the Past, Zelda 3, a prequel to Zelda 1. So a prequel to Breath of the Wild. It's, it's, so maybe the Link- story of the ancient hero. The story of the ancient hero. I guess that would be the one. That would be the Link to the Past, Triforce of the Gods 3. Bunny Link. Could they call it Triforce of the Gods 3? Bunny Link. Okay. Bunny okay. Link, yeah. Why is it Bunny Link? Because Link to the is Past. Right, but the ancient hero was a Zonai guy. That's bunny kind of Zonai. Like bunny. Zonai often do be looking like bunnies, that's true. Raru does have rabbit ears. He looks like a big Holland lop. I guess so. Yeah. Triforce of the Gods 3? Triforce of the Gods 3. Breath of the Wild 3. I don't think Tears of the Kingdom is much like Zelda 2. No, it's not. I think it's more like Skyward Sword. I mean, it is a Sky... It, this is literally <laughs> Skyward Sword of the Wild. Yeah! <laughs> could you could you elaborate a bit further, though, Crystal? You got a big focus on the Masters. True. You've got time travel to the ancient past. Ooh. You've got... I mean, I guess Skyward Sword Sleeping Zelda is Zelda 2-ish. And that is also reused with Dragon Zelda. I mean, yeah, that's true. There's a reason that we potentially said that Sleeping Zelda and Skyward Sword Zelda could be the same person. And uh, Demise is kind of like Demon King Ganondorf. He was a, a, a villain in the ancient past, and now he's back. When you put it that way, Tears of the Kingdom isn't bringing much new to the table in terms of its lore. Like, even Breath of the Wild did a lot of things very different compared to past Zelda games. But it makes Tears of the Kingdom sound a lot more iterative. Here's here's how you write a Zelda story. You you isolate all of the concepts from previous Zelda stories. You put it in a box. You shake it up. You take a handful. And you make a story out of those pieces. So this is like how people are taught not to plagiarize by restating things from their source materials. I think that that's a very cogent way of describing Tears of the Kingdom and Link Between Worlds, but does it describe Breath of the Wild and Skyward Sword? Or Triforce Heroes? Skyward Sword introduces the Hylia concept. That's true. And the Fee concept. Yeah. It does not introduce the Master Sword concept. No. But, I mean, it's also a high school romance story. That's true. That, that is a brand new thing. That is a fairly new thing. Skyward Sword, one of the most innovative Zelda stories. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that the way that Breath of the Wild puts us, like... The game that we play is just the epilogue to the end of the tragedy that was everything leading up to Breath of the Wild. That was also pretty unique. You lost. You lost. And this is the epilogue to you losing. And of course, Triforce Heroes is uh, not much like any other Zelda. I guess it's actually a lot like the it's actually a lot like the Four Swords games. Yeah. Triforce Heroes? Yeah, just in terms of it's like, okay, go here and do a thing. Why? Who knows? There's a very defined reason why. Yeah, there's a very defined reason why, but it's a story that doesn't take itself very seriously in the same way that the Four Swords games don't. You're solving a very immediate problem or issue. The princess is not happy with her very fashionable outfit. True. She doesn't understand couture. It's a story without any villains. <laughs> also true. There's an antagonist, but no villain. Yes. And a few very, very ungrateful royalty members. Justice for Maud. That's Sacred Realm problem. That is Sacred Realm problems. What if we do, what if we fix the timeline and then it's like, 
We decide that that's not the sacred realm anymore. What else could it be? I don't know is the problem. There I don't know, but it could be anything. Could be anything. Could be Probably anything. the sacred realm, though. Could be the sacred realm. That's true. Space. The final sacred realm. <laughs> Why did you laugh so hard at that? That wasn't anything. Crystal, stop it. That was not very well. Because, I don't know, Crystal, if you did it intentionally, but it was sort of read in that Star Trek way. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It was very intentional, Okay, Monica. then it was funny. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, friends, if you would like to send in emails and listen to me die, uh, you can send them in to bookofmedorapodcast at gmail.com. That is, once more, bookofmedorapodcast at gmail.com. Crystal, where can we find you online? You can find me at Arcane Crystal on Twitter and Arcane Crystal on Patreon, where you can listen to this one week early. You can also find us on the AudioEntropy.com network. If you go to that website, hit the About section, there will be a link to the Discord server where you can come talk to us about the podcast. And you can also find me on the Eidolon Playtest Podcast, an actual play where we play Eidolon Become Your Best Self. There's two campaigns, Eidolon Disco and Eidolon Ska. Disco is set in 1980 and Ska is set in the year 2000. Both follow a team of high school mystery solvers, tackling the sides of one big mystery 20 years apart. How's that going? It's going pretty good. Enjoying it? Mm Mm-hmm. And are you enjoying people giving feedback on your Eidolon uh, sub-campaign? Yes, I'm on Eidolon Ska. Oh, I meant the um, Eidolon Oyster. Yes, we also did a, a season of four-episode miniseries, and I GM'd Eidolon Oyster, which is about a team of Eidolon doctors in a hospital. I recommend everybody listen to it. I listened to it without having listened to any other Eidolon thing ever. Uh, it turns out, Crystal's a pretty good GM. Thank you. Would you like to hear a Rome joke? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. This comes in from upjoke.com slash Rome dash jokes. In ancient Rome, there were four kinds of poison. Poisons one, two, and three would kill you instantly. Poison four would just make you itchy. Wait, is that the end of the joke? Yeah. I don't... I, I have missed it. I've... How, how do you write four in Roman numerals? Poison ivy. Oh, poison ivy. <laughs> ah. <laughs> that does a lot better when it's being read. <laughs> Yay. All right. Good night, everybody. Bye.